0: Hello, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America, featuring today's top directors sharing behind the scenes stories of their latest films and insights into the craft of directing. Please take a second to subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. This episode takes us behind the scenes of director Edward Norton's new crime drama, Motherless Brooklyn. Based on the novel by Jonathan Lethem, the film follows Lionel Esrog, a private detective with Tourette's syndrome, who uncovers a web of corruption in 1950s New York while investigating the murder of his mentor. In addition to Motherless Brooklyn, Mr. Norton's other directorial credit includes the feature film Keeping the Faith. Following a recent screening of the film at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles, Mr. Norton spoke with director Mike Bender about filming Motherless Brooklyn. Listen on for their spoiler-filled conversation.
1: Hey, congratulations. Thank you. I got to say, I, I love this movie. It's uh, I, the best compliment I could give you is I wish I made it. You know, it's one of those movies I just go, God, I wish I did that one. But uh, man, that's a lot of work. That's a lot of work. You know, how, how many how many days did it take you to shoot that movie? Well,
2: I, I know what it should have taken. But um, <laughs> but we had 46, which was not enough um not enough uh we uh we got it done though um we uh we we shot it independently you know we made the film independently um so we we were able to you know we worked in new york under an indie contract and stuff like that and and uh but i had you know dick pope shot the film he did an amazing who, job uh just I an can't, amazing I, job. I, I, uh, and,
1: and who is your who is your production designer? Beth Mickle, oh,
2: absolute genius,
1: unbelievable. Gen- one
2: unbelievable. of the rising greatest talents in the trade right now. Oh, She's man. so amazing. Um, really, there, I, I, this uh, Dick Beth, uh, a visual effects supervisor named Mark Russell, who who did six hundred eighty three effect shots for. About a two and a half million dollar budget. Um,
1: like, just break down real quick, just in, in a nutshell, what were the visuals ex- and something like that? Because well, cause no I mean, aliens you know, landed the, the, or
2: anything. The, it, it, there's just so much. There, obviously, there's a lot of just takeaway if you want to shoot right. the fifties. We did we did pretty well with finding um, the the places that architecturally were were pretty clean, but uh, you know all the normal stuff with signage and skyline. Cleaning up and all of it, but um, the you know the big ticket stuff like Moses's office um,
1: with the bridge in the back. Yeah, that's that's on that's
2: on that's in a it's not that's not actually there on Randall's Island. Um, The exterior is, but the interior is not the uh, Penn Station and um, and. uh,
1: I love that set of of the Penn Station set. What 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 did you how'd you do that? How'd you pull that off?
2: The best compliment I can give Mark is that a couple pe- a couple people have said, did you, "Would you, did you go to Budapest or something?" Yeah, um, but uh, it wasn't. It was just just a airplane hangar on Long Island. The it's just the lockers and the benches. That's all that's real. Um, and and the newsstands. Uh, this great. Yeah, he did a beautiful job. The Penn State, the Penn Station, uh, the architectural plans of Penn Station are still available in the museum. So, we were able to actually ac- actually ingest the 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 Penn Station architectural plans into an architectural software and work up from that. Wow! Um, but it was, uh, you know, and and we, you know, we were making we had to make the film for, uh, you know, kind of a twenty six million net budget. that Wow! Film. Did and you the, really? Yeah, That's and the, incredible. And the, and the and so we really, I, I had ve- I had people pushing on me very rightly, like couldn't couldn't he figure out what's in the hat at a bus station, <laughs> you know. Um, <laughs> It's like that's a big is a big number that yeah. we could pull out of this whole thing without that, um, but I really felt like, you know, the, the that film feels the,
1: like such a bigger movie than that number because yeah. especially oh uh, that overall car yeah. chase at the beginning, yeah. I mean that's that feels like more than twenty six million dollars worth of old cars.
2: <laughs> we um we uh we 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 did most of that second unit um. I learned, you know, I, it's funny. Someone said to me, like, if I, I read the book, the, the book Motherless Brooklyn takes place in the 90s, and it doesn't, it doesn't have anything to do with Robert Moses. Or Paul, you know, the book has Minna and the guys at the agency and the orphans and everything, but it's a contemporary novel. And we, we decided to set it um, in the 50s for a variety of reasons, having to do with the, the tone of the book, is feels like a Chandler novel. It's a it's kind of a little bit of a meta literary surrealism in a certain way. It it if you played the book exactly like it is on film, it would feel like The Blues Brothers. I think it would feel like like guys in fedoras in the modern world and it would be very ironic. Right. And we didn't want we didn't want Lionel's we didn't want Lionel to be a running gag. And um and once we once I had this notion that it would be just better to set it in the 50s and once once we did that, we we needed to open it up into a bigger canvas. This the plot, um, and uh, and so um, we we were, we went for that. But the um, but the thing is that Penn, Penn Station is uh, it's it's New York's it's New York's lost Notre Dame. You know, it's 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 cathedral that it it was this great. It was the gateway, the transcendent. Space that you entered and left the city, and and it got lost to the backroom deals of people like this. It was it was a it was a backroom deal, and it was it's so emblematic to me of what happens. Well, I'm to curious, our curious why to
1: why did did you not shoot Grand Central? I mean, would you that could have been easy because it's mm, there? Yeah, it's and different it's just though. Been it's, shot a lot? Is that what it was? Is yeah,
2: it, yeah. It it wasn't lo- because it wasn't lost. That's the yeah, point. Like like Penn Station is New York's ghost. It's the yeah. It's the, it's what ha you know when you, you've when you th- there's so much in the film I think about people taking care of each other and the the importance of having people looking out for each other and and uh and what you know in the 50s what happened that no one was looking out for the city the city got orphaned and Brooklyn got orphaned and. Penn Station you know and there was these there was just loss after loss after loss the old the richness of the old city communities every you know everything went under the went under the steamroller to progress and infrastructure and um and and so much of it was capricious at best and actually racist at, at by design at worst and um it it just was uh I, to me Penn Station was too it was it was it was it was, it was too evocative to not try for it, you know.
1: No, so what I guess hasn't come out a lot, and I guess I just know because I know you. You're, you're from an architect's family, you know. Your your father's an architect, right? No, your no, grandfather, uh, my grandfa- grandfather. My, he wasn't an
2: architect. He was a. Um, he was an urban planner. Yeah, an he was a. Planner. He um a, and a, a very big philosopher and developer of cities, and um, uh, he 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 was kind of the. His voice comes through uh, Willem's character a lot. There's a, a lot of things Willem says were things my grandfather said in speeches.
1: So this movie is like, this whole story is right in your yeah. strike zone, right?
2: Yeah, I worked, uh, it was part of the reason I was interested in working, in in weaving the, the mid-50s and the damage that was done by people like Robert Moses, not just Robert Moses, but uh, him and others. Um, and I think uh, I, I, I learned about a lot of, I worked for my grandfather in New York Right when I got out of college, I, I, um, I worked in affordable housing, and was, you know, I, I, that was my first exposure to the ways that New York had been so broken in a lot of ways, um, and, and, it, and it was fascinating. As you lo- when you learn that history, you realize that that's the period, if LA's original sin is that it stole its water, you know, if, that, if that's the really dark secret under LA, that it essentially is a city built on water stolen from other communities... Um, that destroyed other communities. Um, L. A.'s modern dark secret is what Moses did in the fifties. It's, it's it's that it's that for nearly half a century, you know the 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 capital of the world, the 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 great melting pot, the place that democracy was you know working was really run by an autocratic, um, very racist individual who was totally antagonistic to. The democratic process, and um, and really was was a sort of a Darth Vader like figure.
1: So it's so funny because it's like I just I guess just knowing you, and I didn't see any of the press in any of the press that kind of link to your family, but also knowing you, also it had to have so much links to Trump, <laughs> you know.
2: Well, I wrote it. I finished writing it in two thousand twelve, um, and. I won't say that post two thousand sixteen I didn't underline a few things um oh i think you probably um but uh but I did think that that moses this this kind of literary version of of the he he's kind of a timeless you know he he's a to me a more a more timeless kind of threat to America, which is the idea of, of of power being where it's not supposed to be, or not, or we or we can't see it. Um, what what happens when power is outside? You know, has been amassed and is being deployed in in the shadows, and that that's where real damage gets done to us. Um, and I think you know that the, the thing is noir when it's not gumshoe sort of dime storage, you know. Um, Cliche. It. I, I think we're, when it's really good, it's a great. It's a great American tradition. It's a very American uh, impulse to say, "Hey, there's the. We have this narrative of what America is. We all buy into it. We take some. We take pride in it, and we trust it to a certain measure. But noir." has always kind of peeled the corner back and said, well, hang on, there's, there's stuff going on in the shadows. There's a shadow narrative in American life. E- not even necessarily political. The big sleep is pretty much like just the plutocratic rich are sick. You know what I mean? There's there. It's not really about politics. It's just about degraded um, ethics. and um, But, and I think the detectives in a lot of these films, I love what I love about them is they're not moralists. They're not, they're not actually crusaders. They're, they kind of guys out for a buck, but they start to get irritated by what they find. They find things, and they get more and more and more irritated. Um, and and I think that's a very American sensibility in a way to go. Hey, you know, everybody's in the game, but if you're playing the game, if you're if you're rigging the game to a degree that you're really screwing the rest of us, we're going to start to get annoyed. And that that I think that's that's
1: yeah, there is a great kind of moment where where Randolph asked Lionel. What are you in it for? You know, uh, you know, are, are you for sale? Are you are you crusading? And and you know, it and we're kind of going, you know, we want to hear it. You know, and and yeah, it, it's it's really just leave her alone. Well, the
2: one of the things Jonathan Lethem, who wrote the novel, you know, he created this character. It's such a great character. But one of the things we talked about uh, at different times was yeah, what I love about the the character in the book is that he's... Jonathan pulls off the thing that we're all going for in films, in novels, in songs. It's, it's like the hook, you know? Does, can you set the Does the hook land in the first, you know, five bars? Or in the, the, uh, in the book, the first page... You're hooked. He's, you're inside this guy's head. He's telling you his own story.
1: Well, I will say, I will say as a director, and mm. f- talking to you as a director, I thought that is a, was a really bold choice for you to take this role and to be the director of that role because that could go bad real fast. You know, I you tend c- to you agree. Could, I'm watching it, and I loved it, but I thought this could go really bad. You know you could be stuck with this the whole movie, and as a guy watching it, I could be stuck with it the whole movie, but more, you could be stuck with it and you pulled it off great as a director, you know there was just the right amount of it you know and and even when you kind of varied it with the with the blowing the match Bogart bit, you know it was just great. you really pulled it yeah, off the
2: anti bogart
1: but that was um, a really brave choice well, you, you know. <laughs> I have to say that was a really great
2: Well story. you gotta you gotta play to your strengths and if your strengths are are um you know the opposite of strengths like I don't know. I, I, I'm I I'm not I'm not I don't think my strengths are Bogart like strengths.
1: Um
2: my or, or Nicholson's like strengths. I think my Lionel Lionel's sort of in my sweet spot more than But that was walking um, onto
1: the ice taking that yeah, <laughs> role. I help.
2: think well, I mean I started to talk about Dick. I think for me, I don't I don't mind directing myself. You've done it ten million times. Um and uh and I think there are times when um you understand a thing and and it it's integrated and it makes it makes sense to do it to do it all. I you know, I have very efficient conversations with myself as an actor. I I, I, I listen to my I mean I, I trust myself. Uh the actor in me trusts the director in me. And as a result, I I actually get through stuff faster. I'll, I'll be more experimental with less protectiveness. You know, you're. As in, I mean, look, you know, if on something like Birdman with Alejandro or something with what if I work with Spike Lee? There, there's people I've worked with. I, I surrender myself so totally and happily to them. I don't that that experience as an actor when you are. Hey man, you want blue? Let me give you the full force of my talent on blue. Let me give you, a, you, you want to switch it to red? Let's try red. You know, that's the happiest place to be where you're not, you're not even, it's not even the back of your mind, how is this going to get used? Because the trust is that deep, right? That's the best. That's what we all want. And then as a director, that's what you absolutely want and need um, from an actor. Uh, I remember Mike Nichols when I was really young, I, Mike was. Mike Nichols was such a mentor to so many of us in New York. And Mike told me one time, he said that he had loved working with Jeremy Irons when they did theater back in the day because he said he could tell Jeremy Irons to try anything and that if it didn't work, he, he would get, it, it made it easier for him to get off the idea because he was like, Jeremy Irons doesn't hold back and if, he, and if it's not working, if Jeremy Irons can't make it work, it's a bad idea. You know what right, I mean? Right. And, but he talked about how, how much it helped him to know that there wasn't th- that that he was just giving it to him, yeah. And I it really registered with me. I was like, I want to be that way, you know. Yeah, it's it's some tot- pe- and, and, some it, people it, make it hard to be that and way, and
1: that's why I think actors are good directors. You know, honestly, one of the best actors I ever worked with is Sam Raimi, and I, he was once an actor in one of my movies, and he gave me so he would just it, would, it was Indian Summer, and, and he would just. Just giving another idea, pal. Just, okay, I'm just throwing it out, and he just <laughs> drew, he would just rapid fire every. At one, it was like a Pez dispenser of ideas, and, and he didn't care if I used it or not. He just wanted it, you That's know. Great. And I think that some actors hold on to him, but once you've been a director, you just realize. I'm just throwing them out. Hey, man, they're just. I, I'm just trying to help.
2: I, I, I agree. It makes, as an actor, you, if, if you've directed a movie, you'd never be late. You, never, the first time I directed, poor Fincher, I was late a lot on Fight Club, and he, he let me know it. Um, and then I directed a movie right after that, and I was never late again. That's Literally, right. I, That's I was right. never That's late so again. That's so true. Um, no, that, but, means, but, uh, that brings
1: me to a question, because I loved Keeping the Faith. And this was a long time since Keeping the yeah. Faith. But you know, um, you know,
2: well, but well, actually, this, I, I this think gets back a to you, oh, well,
1: Why do you wait so long?
2: I didn't mean to. It, it, it just, uh, I wanted to get this one done, and I thought I was going to get it done sooner. Um, you know, I, I, uh, I, can't, I can't really say. I, uh, this one was elusive. It was, it was, it was hard. Um, and, you know, originally I developed it through the old new line with T- Toby Emmerich, and Toby was the most phenomenal supporter of this project all the way through to when New Line went over into Warner and it wasn't the type of movie he was supposed to make there, but he championed it. And, uh, you know, the it just took us a long time to figure out how to put the pieces together. Um, but I can't say enough about, you know, people talk about studios don't make these kinds of movies anymore. And generally th- that's often true. Um, and I think, uh, uh, but Toby, I, I really can't give him enough credit when he got the top job at Warner. He said to me, look, I, I'm, we're going to make a couple of these movies every year. I'm not going to have this job and not do that. i got to do them smart. He was like, I can't do sort of the Once Upon a Time in Hollywood model of $100 million and 120 to market. I just can't do it. He's like, but he goes, if we can figure out how to do this smart, I can give you, he goes, make it independent. We'll do it on a negative pickup, but you ha- we'll have... Commitment to distribute for the world, and then you can use that to ra- help raise the money. He, he was he was super super smart about saying let's do this in a way that that it doesn't it keeps the risk profile down. But I, he said I want to make these movies, and and um and I really admire. I it was it didn't make it easy necessarily, but it gave us a path. And when we got it done. You know, it. it I, I love that this movie's got the Warner label spinning up on it. 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 It feels like that kind of a film, and I. And I really. I really appreciate the how much he stretched to help me figure out how to get it done. Um,
1: it blows but, my mind. It blows my mind that you say twenty six million dollars. Yeah,
2: I, we did it for thirty thirty two net, and then the New York tax uh, gross and the New York tax credit. And what it about, about Bruce
1: Willis and? and yeah. I mean, and Alec Baldwin. Well, I mean, they, I, no, I they, those they, guys make that in a movie. Yeah, Some but they the,
2: the the cast co-financed the movie they deferred the whole everything everyone they're, did they're scale really? pretty much yep wow Yep. bruce starting with bruce and uh alec and willem and everybody just bobby everybody everybody did me the solid and and came in and and did it for the love of it and and really no money the um which was amazing uh and i think and i think but when you say 20 years the funny thing is is i think if i would tried to I had more money and time on keeping the faith um i literally, i had sixty two days on keeping the th- for a rabbi priest joke you know um, i really did and it, and it was great but the thing is it's funny after that i worked with um uh it's funny you talk about people acting and directing and things like for for me when I was like eighteen or nineteen and uh, do the right thing came out that that was that movie. was the citizen cane of of my youth it really was like this kid writing, producing, directing, and acting in a movie about his block in New York. It's wildly entertaining. And it's like still probably one of the most, it's probably one of the biggest impact films ever made about race in America. You know, it was like, and um. And I remember when Phil Hoffman and I worked on uh, The 25th Hour with Spike, we talked about, seeing that film and it it rewrote your ambition i mean it literally changed it changed the target of your of your aspiration by the way
1: this move the music in this movie kind of has threads to the music and uh, yeah yeah
2: no i I agree that because because you know public enemy on the opening titles but then jazz and then this whole weave of music and new york and all of it and and uh and i remember thinking like wow if you can i mean but then when i went to make a movie with spike he shot the 25th hour in 26 days. Do you really and, um, and I remember Phil and I were like, uh, just because Phil was directing films too, and it was kind of like, how does he get this done? And you realize the, he was, for all of Spike's iconoclastic uh, you know, kind of personality, he's the most meticulously prepared director, like six weeks of rehearsal, nine to five every day, shot planning, everything. And, and you move, he moves a set along in the city, like I've never seen anybody in my whole career do, and then I did a couple films with Wes Anderson, and then we did Birdman. I did Birdman with Alejandro, and th- th- those series of experiences baked, get, put me in a place where I was more ready to figure out how to do this in a in a major way. Like I, I I'd been working with like Fincher and Milos Forman and people who had not, Fight Club was a 130 day schedule, you know, and um. And I, and that was not the musculature I needed to get this done. I but working with, working with people who really really f- had cracked the code on how you do a lot with a little, had a big impact on on figuring this out. And um,
1: let me ask you about uh, working with Dick Pope because I loved some of the shots you set up. They they really they really um like some like had that kind of Edward Hopper kind of it just i i just i just loved there was some of did you guys like what did you guys talk about i mean what did we you we see looked it? at a lot of hopper we yeah. looked at um I mean, uh
2: yeah. we looked at a hopper we looked at a lot of Vivian meyer photographs um there's there's a few Easter eggs homages to her stuff but but i'm glad you said that again because dick Doing the when I, I did the illusionist with Dick, he was nominated for that, and he's you know for the he's he's shot every Mike Lee film, every single yeah, one. He's amazing. But all those Mike Lee period films, you know, uh, Vera Drake and Topsy Turvy, and uh, then the, uh, Mr. Turner, which he was nominated yeah. for too. The, the, those films, I, I would look at them and go, "How can he be doing this on Mike's schedules?" I know Mike's schedules are short. And then I, I did the illusionist with him, and that was a short schedule. And I thought—I remember doing it and thinking, if this looks any good, he's then he's a master because we were we were moving along. And it and it was the best thing about the film, his his photography on it. Yeah, and it
1: kind of reminded me of—I'm blanking right now—the name of the guy that did a lot of the early Barry Levinson diner films. Uh, I, um, I, I can't I remember. remember that. But he 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 ro- ro- uh, Robert. Uh, Bob Richardson? No, no, but he he, he shot all Barry's early, early stuff. Yeah, the, the, all the that series of three mm-hmm, films mm-hmm. that he did in Baltimore. Yeah, but as I was watching it, he kind of he had that kind of feel. But well, it, I, I sh- when I we loved.
2: I saw Dick around on um, when Mr. Turner came out, I saw him somewhere out there, and I, I said, do you do you shoot that on Super Thirty Five or something? And he said, no, no, I shot on the Alexa, used you know these old Cooke pancro lenses. And and I I said, I have to have you, you have to come do this film with me. I can't, honestly, I, I, I really couldn't think of anybody who I had the confidence could paint on a big, rich palette and do it at the pace that we had to work on. And Dick's, you know, Dick's, Dick's appreciated, obviously. I mean, Roger Deakins told me he thinks Dick's like the most, the, the best, least appreciated um DP around <laughs> which I agree with but he but but it, it's not that he's he, he's he's legendary in Britain Sam's, and I think Sam's um you, Sam's with yeah and he yeah, but he uh he's Dick is 73 74 he he works like a 30 a year old he's he's so fierce and so vital and his the I, I never ever could have gotten this done at this scale without him and um and uh, I just can't say enough about him. I mean, working with him was like it's like one of the, yeah, the he, peak loved, experiences I of my it. career. He I really did, yeah. He really and he He's also, great. because he shot, I mean, um, this is really weird, but I watched uh, when born to Run, Springsteen's uh, record had the 30th anniversary. Uh, they put out that remastered concert. They, 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 they had a concert film of of the 1975. Hammersmith Ballroom London concert that it was the first performance of Born to Run, basically. And I realized it was shot by Dick Pope. Oh, wow. And, um, and I said, that, that's not you. And he goes, oh, yes, that was me. You know, And um, I, I, I think that there's something that he... There's something about his... Um, he, he shot for the BBC and he shot music and I really felt while we were making the film, in addition to my partner, Bill, who produced the film and is a terrific actor... Um, who I I felt I could look over at and and sort of check in on performance stuff, but Dick also, apart from being a great great photographer, he's got a great you know all those years with Mike and doing improvisational work, he's got a great. He, even if he doesn't know you're looking at him, I could look at him and kind of he's he's he, he you you can tell when he's. When he's, uh, he's he was a great barometer for me, even as an actor.
1: No, listen, we're, we just got a couple more minutes, so I just wanted to ask you because, you no, know, I I actually came to your house wh- while you were filming. I was working in New York, and you had been up all night, and I think we woke you up, and you came up, and you were just beat, and you were talking about him, and and uh, you just were beat, <laughs> you know, and I know that feeling, and. But I know what a run up the hill this movie was to you, and now to have it done, and I just think it's such an amazing feat because this is this. They don't get to make people don't get to make movies like this anymore. You know, they're, and as as the world goes further and further along, they're going to get to make less and less of them. You know, they're they're going to go. Yeah, you can do that, but get rid of the car scene and just have them talk in the apartment and. And say, boy, what a we had a horrible w- r- car chase on the way over here, you know. You know, and I mean do you, you what uh, does it feel like right now? Do you feels, feel it like good, yeah. it was I mean, worth I, the I, twenty um, years? I mean, what? Yeah, yeah,
2: sure. I mean it's I a mean, it's what? a privilege. I I I wish all of us in this room I, I wish the new standard was gonna be that Netflix will give us all two hundred million to age all our friends backwards. But I I don't think that's actually coming for all of us. I think um, I think it's a one-off, and uh, um, I uh, I think you know we got to get. You, I don't know if you have to get any. It's always been hard. Maybe it's harder now. But on the other hand, there's probably more ways to get things done than ever. Um, I I felt that this was worth pushing to still make it for a big, you know, for. Th- for a theatrical kind of a cinema experience, and um, I wanted I, I wanted to do a lot with the music to weave in, uh, so it was you know an enveloping experience, and and um, I got amazing collaborators on that, but uh, but uh, yeah, it was it you know I, look, I think that I talked about Spike. I mean, I was very affected by Reds, you know. And I remember I, there was times with this I was I was feeling I was feeling pretty I want to say beat down because I was doing other fun things but I, I was frustrated I felt a little thwarted with it, um, and uh, I talked to Warren Beatty one time and I asked him about Reds and he was like oh man it goes I, you know I I never had more chips on the table than when I did that and he goes and people nobody he said you know people told me you're gonna flush your entire career on this. Nobody wants to see a three hour movie about American socialists with documentary footage of the, of the, you know, and he was like, well, I want to, I want to see it, you know, I want to do it. And, um, and I think, fig- you know, and I, th- and I, the, the point, the point being that he, he said to me, it, it, we look at it now and we go, sure, obviously, but it felt very half-baked, you know, at the time. I think even for him, even as big a star as he was, it, I think it was very half-baked. He felt very out on a limb. And um, you realize, like, we're not, like, white helmets in Syria saving people under fire. We're just... We're, we're trying to make movies. Uh, and, why you know, why you might as well take a swing at it. You know, there, there's a certain point where you say, like, hey, if, if I can get this together and get all my friends from New York theater and get everybody together and do one... Um, it's worth, you know, it's worth fighting for. And if you get to do it, it's an, it's, it's hard, but it's a privilege. It's an amazing privilege.
1: Well, this is going to sit on the shelf with a lot of the movies that you, yeah, that you look up to. I really feel that. I really feel as time goes on, this is going to really sit on the shelf with all that, and you're going to get all you need from it, you know? So it was worth the run and the work.
2: Thank you. It's fun to show you. I like having it out there and, uh, you know, it's, um, hopefully, uh, hopefully people will, you know, find it.
1: they there. Yeah, they'll find it. <laughs> Congratulations. Thanks, man. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to another DGA q and If you'd like to hear more, you can find past episodes of The Director's Cut wherever you listen to podcasts. Stay tuned in the coming weeks for more great q as with directors Noah Bambach and Melina Matsukas. And be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow cinephiles find the show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally.